A handful of years ago, I experienced the first death of someone I had helped support on my caseload who received disability services. I cried for so long when I got home from the funeral that day. I remember sitting in my front yard after and trying to think if I had seen a single person at the funeral who wasn't a family member or a paid staff, and there had been none. People kept referring to the deceased using a nickname I knew he didn't like, and he typically only allowed his mom and brother to call him that. People kept saying he was a good boy when he passed away. He was a middle-aged man. It felt like I was at a performance of a funeral instead of a real funeral. There were people who had worked with him for years that couldn't say more than a handful of things about what had brought him joy throughout his more than 50 years of life on this earth. It broke my heart to read his obituary in the newspaper because people clearly knew about him, but how many of us really knew him? Can you imagine an entire life lived where not a single person interacted with you that wasn't your immediate family member or someone who was getting paid for the interaction? Every trip to a gas station, grocery market, sitting in front of the TV at home, every single meal is with a paid staff. Imagine that people are so uncomfortable being around you that they would rather volunteer their time to pick up litter in the park or pack meals for strangers or clean up after shelter dogs than spend an afternoon with you learning together. What would you think of love? How would you define friendship? What if no one was ever interested enough in knowing you that... They never asked questions beyond what was necessary to support you in day-to-day life. Life was far worse than this for children living at the home of the Angels in Minnetonka Mills, Minnesota, in the 1960s and 70s. Honestly, I hesitate to even call it a life. This episode discusses brutality and abuse against vulnerable children and the mistreatment and bullying of young staff at a home for children with disabilities. This information is going to sound unbelievable at times, but what I hope you take away from learning about what happened at Home of the Angels is this. These things are still happening to people with disabilities throughout Minnesota and beyond every single day. Laws, And programs, they only do so much when the systems put in place to uphold them are understaffed, underfunded, and broken. If there's a group home in your neighborhood, make it your business to know what's going on there. Be an unpaid person someone knows will show up out of love and commitment or even just concern instead of capitalism. People in those houses need their neighbors now more than ever before. Welcome to Uncovering Inclusion. I'm so glad you're here with us today. 
Welcome to episode two of Uncovering Inclusion. This episode is part of a mini-series on the home of the angels in Minnetonka Mills, Minnesota. To catch up with us, go back and make sure you listen to episode one, where you'll meet Shirley, mother of John, a baby with Down syndrome, who was taken to home of the angels to live more than 50 years ago. So what is home of the angels exactly? To understand that, we need to go back to a time when the state of Minnesota was deciding how to support people with disabilities as parent groups were organizing throughout the USA. In Minnesota, those same families were gathering in a lot of church basements to advocate for better and more diverse living options for their children. This is because, starting in the 1950s, after World War II, parents were starting to believe, along with others, that people with disabilities could actually learn life skills and should be treated like people who could learn and grow. At this point, most institutions did little more than keep people alive most of the time. Much of the problem could be related to the gross underfunding of facilities. In 1964, the per diem rate for a person living in an institution was $5.57. That's about one half the amount that uh, is devoted to tending to animals in our zoos uh, back then. A researcher from Europe uh, even remarked after visiting an institution in the U.S. during this time that where he's from, they aren't even allowed to treat cattle for slaughter the way kids with disabilities were treated. When I used to train new staff who provide direct service to people with developmental disabilities, this means that they're the people working with people and not the folks in suits sitting behind desks. I always had them learn the history of how Minnesota specifically segregates different disability populations. You see, once institutions were recognized for what they were and shut down, every single state in the U.S. responded in a slightly different way. This means that if someone living with a disability in a group home in Minnesota moved to a place like Vermont, they may not qualify for the same type of living situation that they had in Minnesota. If someone from Minnesota was making less than minimum wage doing a job and they moved to Alaska, they would automatically be paid at least minimum wage for the exact same kind of job and the exact same kind of labor because unlike Minnesota, Alaska won't pay anyone less than minimum wage for their work. If you're shocked to learn this information, then stay with us through this episode, and I would also strongly encourage you to do a bit of research on disability history in your state. You'll be amazed what you discover. One of the resources I love and used to use all the time, still do, when training in new staff to work with folks with disabilities is called Parallels in Time. It's a timeline regarding developmental disabilities specific to Minnesota, which was put together and kept available by the Minnesota Governor's Council on Developmental Disabilities. Most states will have a council, board, or department dedicated to disabilities, which is a great place to learn really comprehensive disability history, policies, and social norms. I'll put the link in the show notes and would like to strongly encourage people to spend time with this information. 
A great place to start is in the 1800s and to learn about the types of people that were warned out of communities and told to move on to the next town. As you follow the timeline throughout the years, seek out patterns in how each social identity of the groups of people warned out were finally instead kept in. Once poor houses and almshouses were used as a form of social control for people who fit into previously warned out social identities, many states like Minnesota have continued to use this type of segregation in our present systems affecting all communities. A simple way to understand how this affects your community is to ask yourself, where do people with developmental disabilities live? What about people with alcoholism or children who have lost both parents? Where do people live who have been convicted of committing a crime against humanity? How are the lives of the people with those identities the same or different than each other and why? After you answer, look back through the timeline from present day and the parallels in time are apparent. The further you go back in history, you'll follow the thread of systemic oppression that has been with us since our very beginnings. The more you know, the more you can use your power and platform you have to advocate for all people to have equal human rights. Each time you do this, it gets harder and harder for oppressors to deny the experience of those they oppress. It may not be life and death for you, but it really could be for someone else with a disability. It happens all the time. It happened at Home of the Angels. If you'll remember from episode one, Shirley explained that upon giving birth to her son John, an infant with Down syndrome, a church clergyman came in to explain that there were places children like John could go. After doing some research at home and at the Minnesota Historical Society's research library, I found the home of the angels listed in information pamphlets made by the state of Minnesota for parents of children with disabilities. It was one of just a few private homes I could find in the Twin Cities metro that was listed specifically for children with disabilities. It even came recommended. With Shirley deciding she couldn't bring John home, her options in the 1960s in Minnesota were few. By this point, some parents were gathering to create family groups that would hire special teachers and staff to work with their children that would become, essentially, many of our state's present-day disability nonprofits. Although many of those original families have now been replaced with governing boards of white corporate executives scoring points with Jesus, that wouldn't work for Shirley. Then there were the state schools and public institutions in greater Minnesota like Faribault and Fergus Falls. But by the mid-1960s, Institutions were recognized as being underfunded and depressing as fuck. <laughs> John couldn't go there. Shirley didn't talk about the option of giving John up for adoption, and I didn't ask, because as an adopted person, I have a lot of feelings about that. I didn't feel like projecting onto a fancy elderly woman. So Shirley is left with... A beautiful home for... Babies, mm -hmm. severely retarded. Mm -hmm. They called them retarded. Mm -hmm. Retarded babies, severely. And at that time, in the late 60s, or 
There wasn't anything else available. Mm-hmm. I tried to find Home of the Angels with my partner Gina by physically driving to where the address should be. I scoured satellite images and old plat maps to no avail. There's just something important to me about being in the same spot that those children were kept in. Gina and some friends questioned me multiple times on why going to the home of the angels was so important to me. I became obsessed with it for a few months and started obsessively reading about the interstate exchange construction before I realized that there's now an interstate information sign where the house used to stand. I'm still sad about it. I think real learning requires a level of empathy that can only be achieved through experience. That the state of being in the place where something you're learning about takes place allows for a more accessible and inclusive experience the majority of the time. You're able to use more of your senses to smell the air, feel the wind, touch a wall or the ground, look up to the same spot of sky that others did before you, to take those experiences and imagine them into a memory that can resonate with you, one that feels real to you because you've been there. It just feels more dignified to me, especially when it comes to learning about real people. This isn't some theory about eugenics or fiction to entertain people. We're talking about a lot of real children in a real house in real trouble. What follows is a letter sent anonymously to the Minnesota Social Welfare Department in hopes of being able to save the children before it was too late. Just a warning, it's graphic, but try to make it through. The less we openly acknowledge and accept human rights violations, the more likely we are to continue to allow them to happen in our communities, to our families, and in cases like this, to our children. Some young person, she had only young people working there. Mm -hmm. AIDS, they called them. And in the summertime, it was high school kids. Mm -hmm. And they weren't allowed to tell anybody anything, but one of them told somebody, January 26th, 1973. Dear Mr. Tapper, I understand that you have recently been interested in the angels. I feel that I ought to bring to your attention some of the policies and conditions at the angels that would not become apparent from the kind of tours that are given to visitors, parents, or inspectors. Unfortunately, Because of my close connection to the angels, I have to remain anonymous. I know that you've visited the angels on several occasions, and I am sure that with your experience, you are usually able to detect violations of state standards. Nevertheless, I feel it is important to bring these conditions to your attention because the tours at the angels are so unbelievably fake that you may not be aware of the true situation. I can't recall specifically your tours and what was done on those occasions, but usually, for any tour, an extra-large staff is scheduled, extra cleaning is done, the children are set out specially and worked with more than is ever done otherwise. All signs relating to feeding procedures, bagging, or working the children are removed and hidden. 
Staff members are not allowed to go out in the hall. Lunch hours are rescheduled if necessary. The entire edition is specially aired out and sprayed to lessen the odor. So this odor down there, we finally got to go down there. It was unbelievable. It was so, the odor of urine was absolutely horrible. Laundry carts are hidden and often the entire downstairs is locked. So the first room and the children in that room are hidden. For certain particularly important tours, such as when an inspector comes, the staff is told to bring two uniforms to work so they can change before the tour. And on some occasions, crying children have been put in bags and hidden in the bathroom. That was true. The education work with the children during tours is also very misleading. Children who do not talk at all use the language master. Deaf children are taught to sing. And children who normally spend 24 hours a day lying on their backs are tied into chairs and given a toy to play with. Of the conditions which I'm going to list, I don't know which, if any, are violations of state standards or other laws. However, I feel that all these conditions are detrimental to the welfare of the children and, for their sake, I hope that something can be done to change these. These are the policies and conditions that I feel should be changed and which may be illegal. 1. Though Dr. Tudor is employed by the Angels as medical director, his visits are rare. During the period of which I am aware, he has visited the children at the Angels an average of about once every two months. Even these visits have been relatively short. 2. There are no nurses or other qualified medical personnel employed at the Angels. Mrs. Mahan is said to have some training as a physician, and Paulette Kiever is said to have some nurses' training, but neither have any professional qualifications, and it does not appear that either have made any attempt to expand their knowledge or to keep up with the current medical developments. Considering the chronic medical problems of many of the children, it seems that at least one qualified nurse should be employed. Three, medications, including shots, are given by people with little training and no training by qualified medical personnel. Four, there is no ventilation system. As far as I'm aware, doors and windows are the only source of fresh air. Five, there is no humidifier, and during the winter, the air is extremely dry. This has a real effect upon the children. Some children's lips actually crack and bleed due to the dryness. 6. The heating system is inadequate. For quite a while in the beginning of the winter, it was so cold downstairs that the employees who live in were cold at night even with blankets. The children downstairs have no blankets or even socks at night. Seven, before important tours, the nurseries are sometimes aired out by opening windows even in the middle of winter. Eight, all but about six of the older children are fed only mush twice a day. According to the, the one of the aides that, that told <clears throat> what was going on, that she, it, 
about four o'clock in the afternoon, they, they were all fed gruel, what they call gruel, and they had big tubs and they would just mix this gruel up. The mush is made by mixing powdered skim milk and water, then adding enough Gerber's rice cereal to thicken it to the desired consistency in the morning. Vitamins are also added. It seems to me that this could not possibly be a balanced diet. For instance, either the skim milk or the cereal don't contain any fat. A number of the children would be perfectly capable of eating more normal food, and all of the children could benefit from some variety. 9. The Angels employs no dietitian, not even on a consulting basis. 10. The big kids are fed bread and jelly at about 5.30 a.m. and dinner at 5.30 p.m. On school days, they get lunch at school, but on weekends and holidays, they are not fed lunch on a regular basis. Often they get some food, but sometimes they do not. They are always very hungry by lunchtime and have to beg food from the staff. 11. The children do not receive water on a regular basis aside from what they get in the food. Many of the children appear to be constantly thirsty. They didn't get very much liquid. They didn't, she didn't feed them very many drinks of liquid so that they wouldn't wet their pants too much, I guess. I don't know. 12. The same sink, the one in the blue room bathroom, is used for giving enemas, making food, washing dishes, and giving baths. When enemas are given, the child's excrement is expelled directly into the sink. Afterwards, the sink is to be cleaned with Lysol, but the cleaning is not always thorough. Dishes are then washed directly in the sink, not in a basin. 13. I understand that the small sink in the kitchen is required by state health standards, however, the drain is taped over so the sink cannot be used except when there is an inspection. 14. Many of the children have to be fed individually. As many as seven or eight children may be fed from the same bowl with the same spoon. The bowl and spoon are only rinsed quickly with water in between. 15. To restrain children at night, some of the children are put in nylon net laundry bags, which are pinned to the bars of their cribs. And then they had these big mesh bags, big mesh bags. Uh-huh. And then they would put these children in these bags so they didn't have to worry about them. Some of them were able to crawl a little bit, you know, mm -hmm. maybe fall down. More importantly, bagging children has also been used as a form of punishment. 16. Mrs. Mahan has lied about the number of employees at the Angels to newspaper reporters. There's good reason to believe that she has also lied to social workers, the welfare department, etc. The employees' time cards are sometimes removed from their slots during important tours. On at least two occasions, extra fake time cards have been added so as to make it appear that there were 29 employees. 17. I understand that new standards for the state are going to require that rooms house no more than four or five children. Mrs. Mahan has told the staff that in such a case, she intended to install movable partitions. 
These partitions would only be used during inspections. 18. There is a noticeable lack of black or Indian children or staff members at the Angels. This seems to be more than coincidence. There seems to be discriminatory policies in admitting children and in hiring staff. I hope you're able to do something to change these conditions. I wish I could help in providing additional information, but my present position would be severely jeopardized if I did not remain anonymous. Evidently they were never held except when I would go on visiting day, we'd hold them, but I could tell he he was never used to being held and loved and stuff. I'm going to disclose now that I'm a lesbian who, unfortunately, after an emergency, um, is unable to conceive, but my partner Gina and I have hopes to become mothers in the coming years. And as I said before, I'm adopted, and my birth story is incredibly sad. So I don't know what motherhood is like firsthand. I hope one day I do. I do know what it's like, though, to be left behind. And I can't help but think of this little boy, John, sleeping alone at night, tied down to a crib with no socks. And I want to reach back into the past, and I want to hold him in my arms and take him away from that terrible place. And I just can't tell what it was like for Shirley. She shares her story in the way so many people from the greatest generation do. Sort of like, well, this is just the way it was. What could I do about it? But there were so many things she could have done. There were so many things so many people could have done to intervene at so many different times, and yet they didn't. It took an anonymous letter. And Mrs. Mahan in that big old house hiring teenagers? I mean, there's no way that it started out like that, right? I mean, what went wrong? How did this happen? How do we stop this abuse of people with disabilities from happening again? Because it does. And what happened to all of those kids? Find out next week on Uncovering Inclusion.